Hey there, it's Jason, one of the members of the ENT in a Nutshell team. Thanks for listening to our program. If you enjoy it, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast, and don't hesitate to contact us through headmirror.com with any questions or suggestions. Thanks, and now on to the episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell, part of headmirror.com. My name is Jeff Meekum, and today's episode is another addition to our residency application toolkit. Today's episode involves a panel of four USMD applicants from medical schools with home programs that recently matched into an otolaryngology residency position during the 2020 to 2021 cycle. We will be talking about preparing for and applying to residency in ENT. Today we're joined by four very talented and accomplished panel members. I'll go ahead and introduce each of our panelists and afterwards, if you wouldn't mind saying hello so that our listeners know whose voice belongs to whom. First, we have Amrita Hariraj. Amrita grew up in Ohio and attended both undergraduate and medical school in the Midwest. She worked for two years before medical school as a clinical research coordinator studying Alzheimer's disease. Outside of medicine, she is a trained ballerina and tap dancer and enjoys dancing, playing tennis, and traveling. She's excited to be staying in the Midwest for otolaryngology residency and has interest in health equity, medical education, and physician scientist career. Amrita, you want to say hi? Yes. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for having me on today, Jeff. Very excited to be here. Second, we have one of Headmere's own, Patrick Kiesling. Patrick grew up in Michigan and attended medical school in the Midwest before matching to the West Coast. He's a trained classical singer with his undergraduate degrees in vocal performance. He's active in LGBTQ advocacy, as well as he enjoys baking and staying active in his free time. Thanks so much, Jeff. I'm really excited to be here. Our third panelist is Billy Yang. Billy was born and raised in New York City. He attended medical school in the Northeast and matched at his home institution. After residency, he hopes to work with underserved immigrant patient populations, and in his free time, he enjoys powerlifting, cycling, and horology. Hi, everyone. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. And last but not least, our final panelist is Eve Bowers. Eve is from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and attended college in Philadelphia before heading back to her hometown for medical school. She masked into the Sunshine State for residency and is interested in pursuing facial plastics. She's passionate about medical education, mentorship, and increasing minority and female leadership in surgical fields. She enjoys traveling, cooking, and crafting in her free time. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you all for being here, and we're looking forward to hearing from each of you. So we'll go and get started with the first question, and that is, how did you first get exposed to ENT as a specialty? And what advice do you have for students about getting involved, making connections, and building up your network with your home program? Yeah, so I was actually exposed uh, to ENT on a required clerkship at the end of my third year. So I was pretty late to the game, um, but networking was really important. Uh, It's important in general, and I think kind of underrated in medicine, but really important for a successful match. So uh, the first thing that I would recommend doing is just know that you're program director and your assistant program director know that you're interested, even if you're not 100% sure, just having them on your team from the get-go is really important. Uh, The second thing, most schools have an interest group, so joining that and even trying to find a leadership role within it is a good idea. If you have a free ENT clinic, getting involved with that is helpful. Um, Joining research opportunities on your sub-I is useful and even just reaching out to residents and attendings. If you're not on a sub-I for projects, it's a good idea to get involved as well. And then clinically, I'd recommend shadowing attendings and keep in contact with them going forward, like follow up on their 
pimp questions after you shadow with them, uh, follow up on things you missed, reach out to them after you're finished shadowing with them and just keep in touch, letting them know you're still there. Uh, that's always been helpful for me for networking. So I actually got involved in ENT a little bit earlier uh, during medical school. Um, I showed up to the ENT club interest meeting at the beginning of my first year, and I was really interested in what the upperclassmen were saying about ENT as a field. And so right away, I introduced myself um, and I took the opportunity to offer to help out with anything that the club was doing because I wanted to get involved. And um, I think just simply meeting upperclassmen and getting a little bit of a better understanding of what they had been through in their process of applying to ENT was really helpful. And it helped kickstart uh, how I could reach out to the faculty and residents in getting involved with shadowing, with research, and just starting to get to know the department bit by bit. And so I, I want to echo what Eve was saying about the importance of shadowing. Uh, I think this is especially important if you may not be guaranteed an ENT rotation. You should take the time during your first and second years, if possible, to shadow ENTs uh, at your home institution uh, to really get to know what they do and to see if this is the field for you. Um, and that's when you can start to express your interest, get to know the department, and start getting involved in research projects. Students are frequently told to find good mentors. Uh, what do you think makes for a good mentor? And how do you find good mentors to help you along your path to ENT? Yeah, I think that this is a really great question because I truly believe that um, myself and so many of the other people that have been able to match into ENT, we were able to find success as a medical student and then eventually in the match because we were able to find some really excellent mentors along the way. It's interesting, too, because if you like look at the literature, it's very well established in the literature that mentorship across residency programs and even specifically in ENT is very important to residents during training. But as we all know, good mentorship doesn't just start in residency. And there's even research out there that shows that mentorship for medical students, the mentorship that they receive has a self-reported profound impact on their career trajectory. And that involves rotation choices, residency programs, and field of practice. So I guess the, the big question is, how can we find mentors who help us achieve our goals and positively influence our medical school experience? So for me first, I think that formal mentorship programs in medical schools can do a really great job of breaking the ice in that they help you get a foot in the door of your home department. Mentors in these formal programs are self-elected, meaning that you know that they actually want to be there and they want to help students. And they usually have some experience working with medical students in the past. These formal programs can really help us uh, bridge into more informal mentoring relationships as well that we seek out ourselves. And uh, I, I think that like different mentors can fulfill different needs for us as medical students, whether that's in clinical experience and training, research, or residency application prep, really anything. And so I would say uh, don't be afraid to reach out to multiple mentors to help you achieve your goals in any of those areas. I would echo everything. Patrick said, uh, especially with regards to formal mentorship programs. Um, I know there was one at my medical school where first-year students got connected with faculty members early on. If nothing else, it was just a great way to get exposure to the field. So I definitely think if that's available at your medical school to take advantage of that. And if not, who knows, perhaps you could be the one to spearhead that effort because I think 
Um, it's really great to have that early exposure and have a mentor that can comment on your growth from first year to fourth year of medical school. But I would agree that mentorship is not one size fits all. It's important to know mentors can take many shapes and forms. And I think it actually benefits you to have multiple mentors, um, perhaps at different stages in their career. For example, uh, some of my most helpful mentors were, were residents at my home program who were close to the application process. Uh, some of these residents even had graduated from my medical school and they could comment on uh, the process from that perspective. So I think it definitely benefits you to connect with the residents at your program because they you know, went through the process fairly recently. Also very important to have a good relationship with your program director as well. That's someone kind of on the other end of the spectrum that can give you unique insight into what programs are looking for. And I think you just get a really comprehensive picture if you can connect with both residents, but also uh, your program director. And finally, I think it's okay to even have mentors who are not in otolaryngology. Some of my mentors uh, who were really helpful throughout the process were actually not ENTs. They were in other surgical subspecialties, but when they knew I was interested in ENT, they actually were able to uh, connect me with people in that department. So I think just be open, um, be a sponge and kind of soak up any opportunities that come at you. So let's talk a little bit about letters of recommendation. How did you choose who to ask for letters of recommendation and how and when did you approach your letter writers? So I was lucky to have an ENT department at my home program, but I know a lot of people don't have that. Uh, in ENT, it is important to try to get letters from ENT surgeons. So I would recommend um, if you don't have a home program, reaching out to other programs or asking your program director for advice of what to do. I asked students who had matched the year prior to me who were interns for advice on who um, wrote strong letters of recommendation at my home program. I also asked residents about this as well and my program director. So really just use people around you who know the letter writers. Um, they can give you really good insight for advice regarding who to get to know and who to choose. Um, it's also just important to choose letter writers who know you well, but within ENT, uh, we all know kind of that name recognition is important too. So trying to get an overlap between those is, is useful. I echo a lot of what uh, Eve just shared, and I guess I'll just expand upon that uh, from my own perspective. It's interesting because there's not a ton of research out there about layers of recommendation for otolaryngology specifically and what is the best approach for applicants. And so I think that's why we end up asking these questions a lot of the time. There's an interesting 2008 laryngoscope article that states that 33% of evaluated letters from a specific program were from OHNS department chair or division chief. And so that backs the commonly held belief that these individuals frequently are asked for these letters. So you can definitely consider asking uh, the, the physicians that are in those roles at your own institution if you have a home institution. Also, unfortunately, uh, there is more than one paper that describes gender-based differences and how ENT applicants are described in letters. And that's a whole different but very important discussion. And ultimately, I think that may support the notion that you really want to get letters from people that know you well and can speak to multiple reasons of why you would be a great resident. And last year, I believe that there was a communication that was sent out stating that due to limited rotations during COVID, 
programs shouldn't negatively evaluate applicants that have letters from non-otolaryngology providers. And that communication sort of implies that applicants typically do receive letters exclusively from physicians in the field, which does make sense given that you're being evaluated on how well you would function within this specific environment. So I guess one other thing I would say is ideally your mentors are going to be able to write letters for you based on their experiences with you. And hopefully they can attest to several important areas. That includes clinical skills, surgical skills, research efforts, as well as things like personality and soft skills, because they'll have seen you ideally in multiple, if not all of these settings. So I guess the advice that I was given and the end that I think really holds true is that the more a student can interface with the letter writer, the more the letter writer has to reference and work with. I think all excellent points. Uh, and I will point out, we did do an episode not too long ago about sub-internships, away rotations, and letters of recommendation with Dr. Marino talking about uh, letters of recommendation in a little bit more detail as well. Speaking of that, um, let's talk about sub-internships. How exactly did you prepare for your ENT sub-internship? And what do you think makes for a successful ENT rotation? I'll start with answering the second part of the question first. I think what makes, in hindsight, looking back, what makes a successful ENT rotation is one where you really can integrate yourself into the team. I think as a sub-intern, you're a fourth-year medical student, but you're, you're really watching the intern. You want to prove that you can take on the intern level of responsibilities and the intern duties. So I think it really benefits you to really try to place yourself in the intern shoes and kind of always be looking for opportunities to level up your game, if you will. I think more practically speaking, I think one of the first steps I took to prepare for my home sub-internship was talking to the residents uh, who had gone to my medical school for advice on expectations. They had the unique perspective of both having done the sub-internship I was about to do in a previous year, but they also could comment on how medical students were helpful from the resident perspective. So I think a lot of the general principles for your surgical rotations apply in that you want to read about your cases the night before, look up any relevant anatomy, get to know your patients back and forth. And during the day, understand how you can be helpful, whether that's helping with dressing changes throughout the day, helping with OR turnover, checking in with nurses throughout the day, really being eager for any task that comes at you, I think goes a long way and really having that positive open attitude that you're you're really ready for whatever comes at you because that is a lot of what intern year is about. And then finally, having situational awareness in that uh, just being aware of what's going on. Um, of course, you want to show that you're knowledgeable and you want to be eager and ask questions, but you always want to be aware of what's going on and there's better times than others to ask questions. So I think talk to the residents, uh, find a source where you can look up anatomy and look up uh, relevant information for your cases and just really be open and be ready to be a team player. So I think the most popular resource for preparing for away rotations is probably ENT Secrets. Um, It's a small book you can buy off of Amazon. And I think that there are a lot of really valuable clinical pearls. And it's a good idea to read a little bit of it every day. Um, And you can flip through the chapters that are pertinent to the next day's clinic or the next day's uh, OR cases and brush up on the relevant anatomy the night before because you definitely want to show up to the OR prepared. Um, 
It's also a good idea during your sub internship to make sure that you're proficient in all of the technical skills that a med student should be good at. So things like tying knots, um, things that, you know, these are skills that you should really have tried your best to master during your third year. And uh, what I did was as a sub intern, uh, I actually tied suture thread around my the handle of my backpack so that when I was commuting on the subway, I would just use that time to idly tie knots just so that I could get a little bit better and a little bit faster at it. On the floors, I think uh, being prepared is equally as important. When you're rounding, be the person with the spare tongue depressor uh, and be the person who has a pen light ready. Um, be prepared for clinic because you should definitely be able to take a focused history um, and you should practice your physical exam skills and be able to present your patient to the attending succinctly. But I think beyond being prepared for the medical knowledge aspects of your sub-internship rotation, which are obviously very, very important, I think, like Amrita was saying, the most important part is learning how to be a team player. Uh, ENT is a really small field, and whether or not you can integrate yourself into the team will travel fast among the departments. So residents will know who the best students are to work with, and that also means attendings and you know the faculty will also know. So what this means is that you should not only be able to get along with the residents and the attendings, but you should be working very well with your classmates as well. That means that you should be trying to help them out. You shouldn't be the gunner trying to hog all of the most interesting OR cases. Um, anybody can smell that from a mile away, that that's not somebody that they're going to want to be with for, for the next five years. So definitely, definitely learn how to be a team player. I think that's all very sound advice. I'll, I'll pitch a few resources that I used on my sub-internships, um, a few of them being Headmere resources. So the surgical video atlas that we have on headmere.com is excellent for preparing for OR cases, as well as obviously many of the ENT in a nutshell podcasts. Um, the Iowa protocols, I remember being extremely helpful. And then I used my institution's library to like look up online different textbooks that the residents recommended. Uh, based on what the cases would be for the next day. So this next question might seem a little out of left field, but I was very surprised during the interview trial at how frequently the hobbies section of the uh, ARIS application came up during interviews. So uh, do you think that the hobby section was important and what kind of things can you put in there? Yeah, so we'll start with this one. I think this is a very interesting area of the application because you are really just given sort of a uh, blank uh, entry space for you to type. I mean, there's a character limit, but it's, it's you know, you can type a lot in there and there isn't really any structure or form to adhere to. And I think that this section ends up being important because it's a chance for applicants to show what uh, parts of their personality exist beyond being a medical student. And uh, so I guess for me personally, I can speak to the fact that I put down, I mean, just as was mentioned in the introduction for this episode, that, uh, you know, my musical background, um, I, I put down singing and, and playing, you know, the piano as, as some of my hobbies and interests. I also put down baking. Uh, I think that ultimately this ends up just being one of the sections that's very personal to you uh, because you really want to put down uh, activities and interests that you actually are interested in. 
and that you can speak to in an interview setting. Because I agree with you, Jeff. I think that this came up pretty frequently during the interview process. It was almost like a conversation starter, and they would just sort of uh, ask about it, and and you the conversation would go from there. So it was very clear whether or not you had experience within that area that you mentioned. And but it ended up being something really fun to talk about, and a chance for you to show how you're a real person and that, you know, you can uh, ideally bond with one of your interviewers or another resident on a a shared interest. And so I would say definitely just put the things that you're most interested in and uh, you might be surprised uh, the mutual interest that you find with other programs. Hobbies are really important. Uh, Like Patrick said, they're a really, really good way to show who you are outside of medicine. And they can also just help you stand out on your application and really help you land interviews at places where you'd be a great cultural fit because they're they're always uh, looking at the residents and looking at applicants and trying to find a good fit. And I think hobbies are that thing that um, they, they can use to really see if you would fit in well. So I I actually have some advice for the hobby section, um, and that's just trying to be specific. So instead of saying, I like to travel, say, I love solo traveling throughout Southeast Asia. Or instead of, I like cooking, say, I enjoy perfecting baked salmon. Uh, I thought those things were like really important for my hobby section. Uh, It gave me and my interviewers a lot more very specific stories and experiences to talk about. And you can really pretty much put anything in the hobby section as long as it's not offensive. It's true, which is really important. Please do not make up things on your hobby list and that you can speak well to it. Um, and as long as you're yourself in this section, I think it's it's going to be good for you and for the application reviewers in the long run. Yeah, I think it's really important to bring that up just because I think it's important to give an idea on your application of who you are as a person. And I think that oftentimes the section gets overlooked. So I appreciate you bringing that out. All right. So talking about other parts of the application, how much did research play a part in your residency application? And what advice can you give to a student who wants to get more research experience, but doesn't know where to start? Based on how often research came up on the interview trail, I would say that it was very important. And I think what makes research important is people, of course, are, are interested in in your project and what what you found. But I also think people want to see how you articulate a project that you did, your role, and what the project means to the field. So I think it's important to be very thoughtful in uh, your research efforts and kind of picking projects that you think you'll be able to articulate, projects that that will mean something to you. And I think a solid starting point, uh, if you have a home program for research, would be you're the faculty member that's involved in coordinating medical students interested in ENT. So your ENT clerkship director, uh, also asking around residents who uh, are working on research if they need help with anything, particularly residents that might have attended your medical school. They might be knowledgeable about faculty members that enjoy working with students. And finally, I think it always serves you well to do your homework and to do literature searches of potential mentors, see uh, what kind of work they're doing, see if it aligns with something you might be interested in. And if it is, I don't. I think don't be afraid to send that email, uh, try to set up a meeting, really put yourself out there and just really be open to any opportunity that comes at you with regards to research. 
if we look at the data about this, we can look at NRMP's 2020 Charting Outcomes Report for Otolaryngology, which we actually have a whole separate great episode that dives into the details of this report. But for this topic specifically, there's an entire page with data that emphasizes the importance of research in applying to this field. So there were 181 matched USMD seniors, which is the vast majority of matched applicants, that had five or more research experiences. And then what's even more impressive about uh, this data is that 234 of these matched USMD seniors had five or more abstracts, presentations, or publications. Both of these are, are really broad categories, and it's hard to make specific inferences about those other than the fact that research is a big, big part of their experiences in medical school and what end up on their applications. Uh, it does imply that there are many ways to communicate research output in this application uh, and that an overwhelming majority of matched USMD seniors have five or more of these measured outcomes. It doesn't give us a specific number of these experiences to match. But uh, when you look at the data over the years, these trends are not new. Uh, we've seen similar numbers from previous years. And so I knew going into this application process that research is going to be a critical feature of a successful application. But I also think, you know, as was just mentioned, importantly, I really want to get involved in research because not, not only because it would be useful for my application, but also it was a really great opportunity, I think, to interface with my home department and gain experience in this field in which, as medical students, we often don't have dedicated time in our curriculums or have very little dedicated time. So I think, uh, you know, as was mentioned, a great way to get involved in research is speak with students in years above you, maybe, you know, uh, current residents uh, who have been at your medical school uh, ask about what their experiences were and what mentors that they had, because chances are a mentor that they worked with that found success with one medical student is inevitably, inevitably going to have future projects with which they're going to need assistance and, you know, might end up being perfect for you. And I, I, one other thing I want to share is that I came into medical school with next to no research experience. I was really forthcoming with this information uh, to the research mentors that I identified, and they really helped me with uh, this process by starting off with easier projects for me. And with, that's like case reports and reviews, and they guided me through the process of building up skills within this area, like scientific writing and analysis. And I think that ultimately as medical students, by finding mentors, who have worked with med students in the past, we can develop our skills as future clinicians and scholars. We can gain more experience in the field and set us up for success in the match. Let's go and talk about interviews now. So what were your residency interviews actually like? How did you prepare for your interviews and what kind of things should students be ready to talk about when interview day finally comes? Residency interviews this year were such a whirlwind. Most of them were pretty long, uh, but they ranged from around four to eight hours. Some of the interviews were conversational, some were more behavioral, uh, some had questions that were really difficult to answer. But you know, if you come across one of those questions, it's really they're really asking it to see how you react. They're not looking for a right or wrong answer because there is no right or wrong answer. Um, there will always be questions you're not prepared for. So. They just want to see that you can uh, perform under pressure, not freak out, because that's what they're expecting from good residents in the OR. Uh, at the end of the day, 
the questions really depended on the program and they will definitely vary based on the residency program's culture and just their interview style. On an individual program level, you know, make sure you know who they are, what their values are, read through their website, read their materials they send. If you're really interested in a specific program, get to know them beforehand, like reach out to the residents, reach out to attendings, um, hop on phone calls, ask to get connected. I even did a research project with a different program I was really interested in. So there's a lot of ways to show interest and get to know programs before interviewing. Yeah, uh, agree with everything that Eve said. Um, questions definitely had a very wide range. Um, they range from kind of standardized questions that were uh, prepared before every room. Others were much more conversational. Um, from my perspective, I think the purpose of the interview is really to assess your personality and your interpersonal skills. Every question your interviewer is asking is something that is going to help them try to gauge what you might be like to work with, how you might interact with patients and members of the healthcare team, how you articulate yourself, et cetera. So I think when you're preparing for the interview, it's helpful to root yourself in trying to think of why, why they're asking you certain questions. Uh, of course, be prepared to talk about everything on your application, particularly your research, and more than being prepared to just talk about everything, I think it's important to have that elevator speech, if you will, prepared for everything. So you not only explain it, but you explain it succinctly and you explain it in a way that highlights you in a positive way and highlights attributes that you want to highlight. One thing that really helped me was doing a mock interview, whether that's through your medical school, with a friend, a trusted mentor, or even your ENT department. I think if you have the opportunity to do a mock interview, it's extremely helpful. Uh, number one, I think it's just a good way to practice articulating yourself and to get any, any nerves out before the actual interview. Number two, you may or may not have certain habits or certain words you say, whether um or like or little uh, non sequiturs like that. If you have any habits you're not aware of, I think they come to light in a mock interview and you can sort of check yourself and work on that for the real interview. So I think doing a mock interview, if you're able to do that, is very, very helpful. I also reached out to mentors and classmates to practice mock interviews. And to get some idea of what I might be asked, I asked my mock interviewers to review the list of 99 commonly asked interview questions on the American Academy of Otolaryngology website. Um, and so in general, during interviews, you should be able to talk about anything and everything on your ERAS CV in great detail. As a rule of thumb, if you can't talk about it at length and with some amount of passion, I don't think that you should necessarily include it on ERAS at all. I also found that it was really helpful to have a handful of anecdotes, probably involving patient care, that you could draw upon to answer any of the interview questions. So these, for me, were personal experiences that I felt that I learned a great deal from, or maybe things that I found particularly challenging. So I think that it's important to be able to speak about mistakes that you've made, uh, be able to speak about how you could be a leader as a senior or chief resident, and of course, be able to talk about why you want to be an ENT in the first place. I think you should also be prepared for the bizarre questions, the questions 
straight out of left field. So the weirdest question I was asked was uh, five things that I could do with a pencil that doesn't include writing. And so obviously that's not something that you can prepare for um, despite being as well prepared as you possibly could be. But I think that's okay. It's important not to sound too robotic or not too rehearsed. Um, sounding natural and conversational is, I think, a very big part of the interview in general. This year was a little bit unique um, with the introduction of virtual interviews due to the COVID pandemic. So I wanted to ask what your experience was like with virtual interviews. And do you have any tips for applicants that may have to interview virtually in the future if that becomes a more common thing? I think an important thing to have for virtual interviews is an appropriate setup. So at the bare minimum, this means you should have really nice lighting. So maybe a ring light. You should have a microphone. Uh, something that you can buy online and you can plug into your computer and also a decent webcam because you want to look good uh, on camera. Um, I think that these things are sort of the equivalent of showing up to an interview in a well-pressed suit or in, you know, clean clothes. I, I think that's, it all comes down to presentation. And so that also means making sure that your background is uncluttered and that you're only showing what you want to show. Um, I don't think it matters so much what your background is as long as it's presentable. But uh, for me, I had a plain blank wall, but other people had paintings or maybe a guitar leaning against the wall. And that was a point of conversation during their interviews. So as long as it's something that you want to show, I think that that could work. Um, another thing to watch out for are technical difficulties. I think that it can be difficult or impossible to, to anticipate, but in general, program coordinators were incredibly understanding. Uh, during one interview, I wasn't able to get into the breakout room for my interview with the program director, and we only got to speak for about two minutes before I was uh, kicked out of the room. Um, but the program coordinator was able to help me out, and uh, she set up a breakout room for me and the program director at the end of the interview day to make up for that lost time. Yeah, so I really agree with everything Billy has to say. Background is super important, and also a ring light and microphone can really help with your overall impression. Overall, virtual interviews were really exciting, but they do get extremely tiring. Keep that in mind. Try your best and be okay with that. Uh, the program directors and everyone interviewing, for the most part, were extremely understanding of how difficult it is to interview virtually. Um, some things that I did that helped me were that in my breaks, I used them. Uh, I did some jumping jacks on breaks. It just kind of keeps you going and gives gives you some energy. Something else that's really crucial is just having food available. Like sometimes you don't realize that you're not gonna have a break for a few hours. And if you get hungry and then you're interviewing hungry, it can actually affect your performance. So having food close by and water and whatever you need to kind of get through the days is, is important. Um, Something that also got brought up a good amount just talking with friends on the trail is sweatpants versus not sweatpants. Um, sweatpants are very comfortable, but one time I was asked to stand up. Uh, so just be aware that anything can happen and be prepared for that. So after the interview happens, uh, you sit down and make your rank list. And obviously rank list is something very personal and each applicant will prioritize things differently based on their individual preferences and situation. With that being said, what kinds of factors should applicants be thinking about when trying to rank programs? There's lots of great advice out there on this topic, and 
this ends up being really personal to the applicant. For me, from my perspective, I can't stress enough how important fit ends up being. You can crunch the numbers on this all day long and make spreadsheets and spreadsheets and lists. And if, But if you have a feeling that one program should end up being higher than another, that's probably a sign that you would much rather match there. For me, I think it helps to keep the actual match algorithm in mind and run through all possible scenarios on the rank list from top to bottom and saying, okay, if I don't match here, I'm going to assume that I will match to the next one right below it. Do I really prefer this program over all the others listed below it? And so in that way, I think coming back to how the match algorithm works may end up helping to clarify the order of programs. For me, the number one consideration was also culture and fit. You're going to be there for five years, so you really need to know if that's going to be the place for you. You need to find a program where you'll be happy training. So uh, one of the best things that you can do is to get a sense of what the residents are like at each interview. How do they like it? And do they seem to get along with each other and with the faculty? Um, I think also location is incredibly important. You have to consider if the program is in a city that you could see yourself living throughout residency. And this is especially important if you have a partner who's going to be moving with you after you match. How does that city work for them? So those are the things that I was really thinking about when I was putting together my rank list. And being that ENT is so competitive in the first place, I honestly didn't think that there are any bad programs out there. I think that there were programs that would be a good fit for me and others that wouldn't be. But I was confident that no matter where I went, I would get excellent training. So quite honestly, I based my rank list more on general vibes than, with, than, than anything else. And at the end of the day, I'm really happy with where I matched. Making your rank list is is an incredibly personal process, and that fit is so important. And I also agree there there really are are no um, bad programs at all. You're going to get excellent training no matter where you go. I would say going into the process, I think it's it's important to be honest with yourself about the those non-negotiables about uh, where you would and would not want to live for the next five years. I also think it's important to be open-minded and and be open if there are uh, maybe programs that you perhaps were not considering at the beginning of the process, but by the end of the process, they might be at the top of your list. So just know that 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 is a possibility and keep yourself open to it. I tried to be pretty regimented with how I thought of my rank list at first, just thinking of some of the more granular details. Uh, Some of the things you could think about um, are the size of the program, for example, a program that has one resident a year versus five or six residents a year certainly is going to be different. So that might be something you want to think about. Uh, Does the program have fellows? What is the relationship like between the residents and the fellows? What do residents who graduate from that program end up doing? Do a lot of them stay in academics or do a lot go in private practice or is there a mix? Do residents do fellowship or do they stay general? Or again, is there a mix? So I think it's interesting to look at what residents who graduate from the program do. Um, You can, of course, think about what your call schedule will look like. You'll be on call no matter where you are, but it's another thing you, you could factor into your rank list. But above all, I think that fit and the vibe that you get and those intangibles end up being really important, as well as the location of the program. Um, and just that feeling that that you're going to be supported and you're successful there, I think really uh, go with your gut in that 
regard. The one thing I was going to say, I uh, was given a piece of advice with ranking and uh, I followed this and it was really helpful for me during the interview cycle. And I put sticky notes with each of the programs I'd interviewed at, put it on my mirror and uh, my wife and I would adjust them throughout the interview cycle based on what we were thinking. And for me that, you know, actually looking at the physical list helped me really say at the end of the day, uh, where, you know, if I matched there, how happy would I be? Would I be happier to be there? And I echo the thought that, you know, programs everywhere are excellent and I would have been happy at all of them. And it's important to realize that you could end up at any of them because the match can be unpredictable. And it's important to think just as much about your number one and two as your, you know, eight and nine or whatever it might be. So as we're coming to the close of what's been an excellent panel, I wanted to give kind of a last minute chance to say any last minute advice you'd like to give before we close or to answer that knowing what you know now, what would you tell yourself at the beginning if you had to do it all over again? So uh, everybody who applies for the match has worked incredibly hard and there's obviously a lot riding on it. But with the way that match rates in ENT are trending, I think that it's smart to apply with a robust backup plan. Even for the most competitive applicants, I think it's smart to have an idea of what you're going to do in the event that you don't match, whether that be if you're going to try to SOAP or secure a research year, or maybe even consider applying for two specialties in the first place. Um, it seems really daunting to, to think about now, but it could save a lot of anxiety in the future. I would say focus on what you can control at each stage. And this is so much easier said than done, but I, I think it's very important. There are truly many forces at play in this process. And your application is, is really this incredible summation of everything you've done so far. And I think it serves you best to not worry about what's behind you, whether that's uh, your step one or a something in the past that you've already done. Um, try to maximize what's in front of you, whether that means working really hard to finish up a research project before ERAS or working really hard on your sub-internship as a fourth year. I think just really keep in mind where you are in the process and focus on what's in front of you and don't worry about what's behind you and lean into your support systems. And please reach out to all of us who, who've gone through this before. Um, we really just want to help. It's a, it's a tough process and you, you have a lot of support here. So just know that. Yeah, so I, I definitely echo Amrita. And as someone who fully chose ENT at the beginning of fourth year, I, I just want to say that it's, it's not too late. It, this is a really difficult and challenging field to match into. But if you just focus on what you have going for you, if you maximize what you're working with, and if you're really truly passionate about the field, um, you can match. So believe in yourself. I know that sounds cheesy, but if you really want this, just go for it and don't dwell on things that you can't change, like your scores. Um, just use the resources that you have. And if you really want it, those around you will recognize that and you'll be in a good place. So my mantra for this whole interview season going into it and throughout really was to just try and enjoy the process because fourth year, you know, is supposed to be enjoyable. You're getting this amazing opportunity to interview at incredible programs, but at times it's really hard to enjoy it because, you know, th these are very stressful situations. Inevitably, you know, mistakes get made. 
you know, you come across tough interview questions, things like that. But I found that if I focused on what was going well, instead of, you know, obsessing over the inevitable mistakes that end up occurring, I was able to more effectively evaluate my fit at different programs and also just a really, uh, I guess, inhabit a more positive mind space throughout this process. And I think that uh, tied into that really closely is making sure that you are taking time to care for yourself. And so that looks different for everyone. But for me, being uh, in front of a screen for, you know, as mentioned before, four to eight hours at a time, uh, I really tried to uh, take advantage of the times when I was not in front of a screen. So even if it was just scheduling in, in time to uh, commit myself to physical activity, just so I would, you know, make myself feel better and and stay active and uh, get some space away from the process. Definitely lean on your mentors, lean on your support system when you need them. And also don't be afraid to advocate for yourself throughout the process because you are your own best advocate. Well, I think this has just been an excellent panel overall, and I'd like to thank each of you individually for taking time to answer um, a handful of questions today. For our listeners today uh, who are tuned in, if you have any more individual questions for our panelists, we will include some of the social media handles from our panelists when Headmere posts about this episode on our social media pages. If you don't follow us on social media, you can find us at uh, both Twitter and Instagram at headmirror underscore com. We wish all of you the best as you prepare to apply to ENT and as you move through the interview cycle. Like it's been said today, this is a very stressful time, but also very exciting. And uh, we look forward to hopefully having you join the field of ENT. Well, that about wraps it up for today. Thanks again to our panelists and to each of you for tuning in to listen. Uh, we'll catch you next time. <laughs>